You're listening to TIP. And you go, do I care what that person thinks? Do I care what that person thinks? Do I care? And it's like, dude, you know. And most of these people are weird anyway. Like everybody's weird. Everybody's weird. Like everybody is weird to their own degree. And so I'm like, I look at the general population and I'm like, everybody has their own like uniqueness and their own weirdness. And it's like, why am I trying to hide my own uniqueness and my own weirdness? These people aren't freaking hiding it. And you'll get over it. Like, In this week's episode, I talk with Pace Morby in part one of this two-part series all about creative financing, seller financing, and sub two. Pace Morby is known as the sub two storyteller, a master of simplifying creative strategies in the real estate industry so even the newest investor can hit the ground running. Pace's energetic approach, no BS attitude, and decades of experience have attracted tens of thousands of followers to his online community of dealmakers and action takers. In addition to his weekly live shows on YouTube, Pace stars on the series Triple Digit Flip with his best friend and fellow mentor, Jamil Damji. In the A&E series, they break down their fix and flip methods to showcase how they regularly earn six figures per deal. In addition, Pace and his partner have amassed $32 million in buy and hold properties across the U.S. through creative finance. Pace brings a ton of energy and knowledge to this episode, and I personally really, really enjoyed it. It's pretty safe to say that this is one of my favorite episodes to date. Not only because I enjoyed the conversation and learned a ton, but because I think it's really going to help a lot of you listening. Pace had so much knowledge to share that we recorded the longest podcast I've personally ever recorded in over 300 episodes that I've done. Because of that, I've split this into a two-part series, with this being part one and next week's episode being part two. The first chunk of this week's episode it's about 35 minutes or so, is a deep dive into social media. Then we get into the nitty gritty of real estate investing. If you want to skip right to the real estate content, you can fast forward to the 35 minute mark. But let me tell you, the first 35 minutes are really great social media content too. I hope you guys enjoy both parts of this two-part series with Pace Morby. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have a very exciting guest. That is Pace Morby. Pace, welcome to the show. What's up, Robert? How you doing, brother? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Killing it. Good, good. Well, there are. I was telling you this before, there are seriously so many things that I want to talk to you about that I almost don't even know where to start. But with the environment that we're experiencing in the markets today, it might be more important than ever to learn about all of your ways for unconventional financing. I want to start by talking a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into those unconventional financing strategies. And then I want to dive deep into each of them. Let's start with how you were flipping thousands of homes a year for other people. And then you actually got into house flipping yourself but you didn't use traditional bank financing. How were you doing it? And how did you learn those strategies? For everybody else on this, listening to this is that I flipped 7,000 homes for other people before I ever flipped a house for myself. And the reason for that is because I didn't believe I could do it. And I felt like everybody had a secret that I didn't have. Literally that like, it was the financing. Like I couldn't figure out like, okay, well I've got money, but like, how are they doing 10 flips at a time? This is crazy. Like I would calculate and think, Man, these guys have got to have seven to ten million dollars that they're flipping, you know, houses with. I got I can't save up seven to ten million dollars. This is bonkers. I came from a blue collar family. What that means is that blue collar families, we work with our hands to make money, right? That's the blue collar trades. And my dad taught me real estate's the greatest thing to ever get into. Meanwhile, my dad never got into real estate. It was just my dad would talk about real estate and all the things that got him excited. I started fixing and flipping houses for other people because I was a contractor. I, I started a construction business because my dad was a contractor. I followed in the footsteps of my father and so many other people on this show listening to the show right now. You guys are in the vehicle that your parents essentially led you down into, right? 
And I can tell you, it was the wrong vehicle for me. For as long as I drove that vehicle, I was a contractor for over 10 years, flipped over 7,000 houses for other people. I should have only done that for a year to learn everything I needed to know. And the way that I actually got into my first flip was very powerful. This lady comes to me. Her name's Bethany Willis. She says, Hey, Pace, you've got a great reputation in town. I see your Instagram all the time. You're shown before and afters. This is kind of how I got my good reputation is using social media. Guys, if you're not using social media for your business, that's like McDonald's not having a sign on their building. Like, How do you know it's McDonald's? How do you know they're selling a hamburger? How, if you are trying to run a business and you're not using social media in the modern era, you, it's like McDonald's without any signs. Nobody will show up. Okay, Nobody knows what you do. I use social media a lot. She saw my social media. She's like, oh my gosh, you've got a great reputation. I checked around town. I want to hire you to manage and run my fix and flip. So I was just the contractor, right? These people would buy their houses. I would literally just run the construction, the estimates, make sure the budget stayed on time, everything on the back end. And one day, Bethany Willis comes to me and she goes, Pace, why aren't you in real estate? I'm like, "What what are you talking about, Bethany? I am in real estate. I'm flipping all these houses. And she goes, no, 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 no. I am in real estate. You work for me and I'm the one in real estate. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, wow, I guess I'm not in real estate. I'm a service provider for other people who are in real estate. So Bethany grabbed me by my shoulder and she like, I could feel her fingers digging into my shoulder still to this day. And she was like, you need to go get your first fix and flip. And I was like, well, I don't know how to buy them. She's like, you don't know what a hard money lender is? I go, I guess I've heard of it, but is that, is that like a loan shark? Is that like somebody who's like, I go down to the mafia pit house and I beg somebody for money. If I don't pay them back next week, they cut off my leg. She's like, no, 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 no. Hard money lenders mean that they're lending on a hard physical asset. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? She's like, a hard physical thing is a house. So they'll lend on the house, not on your credit. I was like, wait, I don't have to have like credit. I can do this. Like, no way. Where do I find these people? She's like, pull up your phone right now and Google hard money lender Phoenix. I'm like, there's no way it's that easy. And then, dude, it was like hundreds of hard money lenders on my phone. I was like, this big epiphany hit me. It's still seared into my brain today. Anytime I want something, I just Google it. It's not that freaking hard and people overcomplicate it. I was one of those people. I went and did my first fix and flip, made $19,000. And I was like, this is crazy. And then I started wholesaling. I made 25 grand on my first deal and I made 50 grand my first month. And I'm like, what have I been doing with my life? I've been kicking on construction. I was like the best known contractor in all of Arizona. Meanwhile, I was just making everybody else filthy rich. So that's how I got into like traditional fixing and flipping and wholesaling. And sorry for the long answer, but that's how I got into it. And then how I got into unconventional or creative ways is I've always been a creative guy. And when you get into wholesaling and fixing and flipping, you start going, okay, well, how do I do more of this faster? The only answer anybody would give me was, you have to just go buy more houses and get more crews and go borrow more money. That was the only answer. And that's when I found a guy in town who charged $50,000 to teach creative finance, like subject to seller finance, novation agreements, 50 grand. So I go pay this guy 50 grand, stupidly. Guys, don't ever spend $50,000 on a real estate education. Don't ever do that. Like, I do believe in mentors. I have my own mentors. I, I think mentors are amazing. But if somebody's charging you $50,000 and they're not giving you like 100% guaranteed success for $50,000, like walk away. In 10 days, I found out I knew, about, I knew more about real estate than this guy here local that I paid for. Uh, he gave me a discount because I complained I was like, bro, you haven't done a deal in 10 years and you charged me 50 grand? You haven't done a deal in 10 years. So he gave me $2,500 back as an apology. So I paid $47,500. And here's the thing is I'm actually grateful for this guy. I don't have animosity towards him. I just don't think it was worth the money, but it was still worth the money. And here's why. Because it showed me that these other things were possible And even though he didn't have modern technology of how to find the deals and how to do the deals, that is the guy that sparked my brain and told me, here's the path you can go down to triple or quadruple the real estate deals you're doing with the same amount of leads you already have. And so that's where I started down the path of creative finance was this guy who 
It was a three month mentorship. I think I spent a week with them and I never went back. Why didn't you just partner with people? I know you said you didn't have enough capital. You didn't feel like you were ready to do it, but why didn't you go to them with a partnership? Was it just, you didn't know what you didn't know at that point? You didn't know you could do that? Isn't that crazy? That's the answer is that I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what a hard money lender was, or at least I knew I heard of it. But here I was working for Open Door, OfferPad, Zillow, all the biggest fix and flippers in town. Nobody wanted me to know. I had one guy, his name's Brian, came to me. This is like, I'd say nine years ago, comes to me and he goes, nobody wants you to know how to do real estate investing because they'll lose you as a contractor and you'll become one of the biggest investors in town. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, I can see it, man. The second you figure this out and I go, well, teach me. He goes, I'm not teaching you. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like nobody will teach me this stuff. So partnering is something that I scream from the mountaintops now because people, I I feel like the first thing you should do when you get into real estate is make five to 10 friends that are also in real estate on the same path. So you guys can leverage resources and you guys can kind of crowdsource information from each other. But I didn't have that. Everybody that I was around was keeping their thumbs on me. They didn't want me to learn anything because I, knowing very little about what they were doing, was now held beholden to just being their contractor and providing massive benefits to them and their family. I've grown up, I grew up in a blue collar family like yourself. My dad's a mechanic. But, and so because he's a mechanic, he has all kinds of friends in the trades as well. My friends are all, I went the college route, but all of my friends went into the blue collar trades. Some of them own plumbing businesses, et cetera. And they've always said that. They're like, hey, you know real estate. I don't know anything about it, but I own a plumbing business. Why don't we go kind of do this deal together? You can run the real estate side of it. I'll do the rehab and then we can kind of figure it out together. Super smart. I see most people nowadays are getting their first deal going that route is like I've got a handful of people that I talked to yesterday. I traveled to Texas and did a bunch of stuff yesterday. And the lady goes, I'm not good at talking to sellers, but what I do is I just go drive around town and I take down all the ugly houses addresses. I'm like, oh yeah, you're driving for dollars. She's like, yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing, but the person I bring all the addresses to, she then invites me over to her living room and she just calls the people with the ugly houses right there in the living room. And we've done three deals in the last 30 months or 30 days. And I'm like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that when I was starting out. How did you get connected with those large flippers, Open Door, Zillow, et cetera? Was it just because you were just so well known? Social media. When Open Door came into Phoenix, Open Door, they're you know, obviously advanced technologically speaking. And so they came into town and they started searching hashtags like hashtag contractor, hashtag fix and flip, hashtag whatever. And that's how they found me and three other contractors. They interviewed all of us. And then I was the main guy that got the first job. And then because I had Open Door as my contract, I then got Zillow and OfferPad as well, just because of that. Wow. Yeah. The like, power of social, social media. media. Yeah. We're going to talk a bit social more Social media. That. I would tell you social media has made me no less than 20 million bucks. No less. I want to talk about, a lot about social media a little bit later. But, but what's crazy about social media is people... I think what people make a mistake of, and myself included, is they connect the dollars to social media. Like they'll post something trying to sell something. And if they don't sell uh, $100,000, <laughs> they're like, oh, this isn't working. Rather, they're not seeing yeah. that kind of more indirect kind of like benefit that they're getting from it. It's a trust factor, right? We do business with people we know, like, and trust. And so the more you put yourself out there, you will attract a very specific type of audience dedicated to you. So I, the first thing I ever learned about creative, not creative finance, but social media was your vibe attracts your tribe. And so what will happen is naturally your vibrations, you as a unique individual. So don't try and be anybody else on social media, be yourself. Like I get criticized all the time. People are like, oh, you put your family on there and I'll just do random things that are not highly produced. Whereas like some of my other influencer buddies, everything's super produced and like edited perfectly. And they've got their perfect subtitles. And I'm like, you're going to attract a different audience than I am. I'm not trying to go after an audience that's not authentic to who I want to do business with. And sometimes I'll get people to go, Pace, I've been following you for two years and I have a deal for you. This is the first time I got my first first deal. In fact, there's a deal that I'll end up talking about today that it came from social media. It came from somebody following me for two years. Like there, you cannot ever think that social media is a temporary solution. It is a lifelong pursuit because marketing is a lifelong pursuit. Look at social media as your business card. You're always going to be updating it. You're always going to be posting and talking about it. You're always going to be passing it out. And you don't know where the business is going to come from, but it floods in. Social media is absolutely insane what it does for us. 
you probably don't know this, but one of the reasons why I have been following you is because of how authentic you are. And like, I like your personal brand that you have is, and, and I have nothing against kind of the shirt and tie kind of more polished approach, but like, look at us, I'm wearing a backwards hat. You're wearing a hat. You have a, a picture of a cool poster, you know, a guy behind you. Like I like that, but I see too many people that are too polished on social media. And for me, that's just kind of a turnoff. I'm more of like that authentic to me. I race motocross, I ride dirt bikes. Like I like to post that kind of stuff on social media as well. I'm in that same boat as you. That's what drew me to you. This is what happens with, with, uh, and your audience is very authentic to you as well. Like they probably come from the blue collar trades, right? They have that same background. And so what I love about this is that your audience will be naturally attracted to you. They don't know why, but they are naturally attracted to you. And then what's great about it is because you guys are kind of of the same tribe, your success story will actually show them a better light on the path than somebody else's success story. Like it's, it's just a greater, it's a better way to operate. I don't know the exact time period, but I went a while on this podcast where I didn't say anything personal. It was my first time ever hosting a podcast. The numbers were getting kind of big and I'm like, I'm not really sure if I want to share anything personal like about me. I'm just going to kind of keep it about the guest. And then over time, I started to share a little bit more about myself. And it was pretty crazy because I, I started to talk about how I race and some of the other stuff that I do. And my inbox on social media was flooded with people like, oh my God, I race dirt bikes too. I had no idea you were into this or I'm really into fitness like you. Like all these people were reaching out. I had no idea. And I think that that just took my list, my connection with the listeners to an even another level. You're the main character of this show, right? Imagine watching like a Hollywood blockbuster movie, but the main character, you never find out his name the whole movie. Like it's not, that movie's not going to land well, right? The audience needs to know the main character and the main character is you, bro. And they, and they love that. They love character development is so important to a story. And what everybody's doing right now is they're listening to a story, right? They're listening to a story of two dudes who found each other and uncovering like success things and failure things and all that kind of stuff that gives them, again, a light on a path that they can follow as well. How do you come up with content ideas? That's what I think I struggle with the most with social media is I just, I don't know what to post, so I don't. Okay. So for me, I I call it the Clint Eastwood method. And Clint Eastwood had a movie. It's my favorite movie. His called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Great movie. And so I post The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And what I do is I document everything. Like if I don't, most of my social media now that I personally post is on Instagram. And then YouTube is, oh my gosh, like I post on it. We post on everything. There's not a platform we don't post on. But I just document. I don't, I'm never like going out and creating content unless it's a story or a specific thing somebody asked me about. So, for example, my YouTube, which is long form content, usually seven to 15 minutes, I'm answering a question that has repeatedly come up in my Instagram DMs or Facebook group or something along those lines that I know people need an answer to, which is kind of hard because if you start researching YouTube, You'll learn that people that are your favorite YouTube creators, they're not, they don't care what your questions are. What they care are what are the general population's questions. And they go and find out like, what is going on with interest rates today and the housing market's crashing. And you'll never really see me talk about those things because my audience is very specific to creative finance. And so creative finance, we don't give a crap what's going on with interest rates. We don't care about whether the market is going to crash or not. Not 100% true, but I'm not going out and creating salacious material on YouTube so that I can get a ton of views. I'm creating a very specific video to answer a question that has come up at least five to 10 times in the last six months. So my content is genuinely just to serve the tribe that follows me. And it works out really, really well. I'm not the biggest on YouTube. I've got 75,000 subscribers. I'll probably hit 200,000 by the end of the year, which is really good especially in a creative finance niche. Like my niche of creative finance, the biggest person in that niche is 50,000 subscribers. And then the next biggest subscriber, like biggest creative finance guy is like 3000 subscribers. So I'm dominating my niche at where I'm at. And it's because I'm very specifically serving my audience without a care in the world of what comes out of it. And I do the same thing on Instagram. So like, I just got back from Texas. I just documented my time going to Texas. Why am I going to Texas? Oh, I've got this deal. What's the deal breakdown? I did a live with the seller at the property. So everything is a documented series of me just doing what I'm doing naturally. So I don't have to create content or come up with ideas. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Would you say you're a Gary V disciple? When you say yeah, uh, document, I don't create, I, I just went right to Gary V. My favorite thing is be the content. Don't create the content, be the content. Like if you're just doing the things that you're talking about, people are going to follow you because they're going to see you're actually like, I won't talk about a project usually unless I'm physically at the project because it gives people a really good understanding. Like, whoa, he's there. He's in Texas right now. Whoa, he's in Idaho right now. Whoa, he's in whatever right now. I am the content. I don't create it. I just document and I, I myself am the content. How do you get comfortable doing that? First and foremost, like go to Disneyland. This is, this is the interesting thing. Okay. Go to Disneyland and just look at every human being. Like Disneyland's a pretty high caliber of people. Okay. Because they're people that probably spent a thousand dollars to $5,000 that day, depending on how large their, their group size is and what food they're buying or whatever. So that's a lot of money to spend in one day. So it's a pretty high caliber of people. We're not talking like go down to the swamp and go count people that don't have teeth. Like we're talking about legitimately go to Disneyland and just count a hundred people. And you go, do I care what that person thinks? Do I care what that person thinks? Do I care? And it's like, dude, you know, and most of these people are weird anyway. Like everybody's weird. Everybody's weird. Like everybody is weird to their own degree. And so I'm like, I look at the general population and I'm like, everybody has their own like uniqueness and their own weirdness. And it's like, why am I trying to hide my own uniqueness and my own weirdness? These people aren't freaking hiding it and you'll get over it. Like, and then here's the other thing. Who are you afraid of when you post? Think about it, write it down. My mom, my dad, my coworkers, a lot of people will say coworkers because they don't want their coworkers to go, well, Oh, you think you're going to be, you think you're the hotshot real estate investor. Now I see you going and doing these things. And it's like, you're going to be dealing with that at work. So here's a simple way to solve that. One, block those people and get them off your Instagram. And then you can post whatever you want. Two, if you don't want to block people because now you feel rude, then go create a second profile just around real estate and go start building that up only around real estate, like pace the real estate investor, something like that. And just create a second profile and then post to nobody for a while and then start commenting. On, it's a, kind of the Gary Vee thing. He, what was it? The 90 cent rule. He's like, go give people your two cents on every one of their posts 30 times a day. And you'll start gaining a following very specific to the niche that you want to post about. I never did that because I just did number one. I just blocked people that I didn't want to see my... like. If I was embarrassed about like my mom, my dad, which I never was, but my parents are always been supportive. 
but whoever it was in my life, which I do, I have friends from high school that are like, oh, you're going to be a real estate investor, huh? Oh, cool. Especially in the blue collar trades, there's like a lot of people like, oh, you're going to be too good for us now, huh? You're going to be too good for us now. So I'm like, block, 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 block. Now I can just live my life in peace and post what I want. Are you a reader? Yeah, I read a lot. Yeah. Have you read the uh, Almanac of Naval? No, I haven't. So in that book, he talks, I mean, I don't think it's a a very like brand new thing, but he takes that strategy or that idea of like, you're going to die and none of this matters anyway, to like a whole nother level. He says, not only are you going to die and it's literally not going to matter to you at all, but go a step further in, in how many generations are you not even going to be remembered? Like what, two generations, three generations, you're like, you're, you're (laughs) entirely gone. Like, think about this. Like some of the most amazing people that we've ever had in the United States, like we, they don't mean anything really to us anymore. And so like, if you take it to that level, it's like, yeah, what, there's nothing to be scared of really. And so I want to, I want to kind of spin this for you because this is actually something I struggle with. And I host the podcast, goes out to millions of people so I can talk to people. But when it comes to video, I just kind of have this I'm not really scared of it, but it's just kind of a different feel than on audio. And so I have an interesting kind of moment here is when we're done recording this, one of the things I do is is I help people kind of do RV rentals. So you basically buy an RV, you rent it out to people, kind of like a short-term rental thing. Yeah, and I did that for about a year. Cool, cool. So you kind of have an idea. So I'm about to go out and clean mine. It's going out for a three-week rental tomorrow, and I'm about to go out and clean it. And I think that's an awesome opportunity to document what I'm doing. Now mm-hmm. the question is, what do I even say? That's where I kind of fall. Like, what would you say? Okay. So everything comes down to what am I going to teach the audience? Like, what can they walk away with value? Right? So what I would do is I would put my phone on time-lapse. Do you have an iPhone? Yeah, I do. Okay. So you put your phone on time-lapse and you just put, set it up on like a little, like I have a bunch of them. I have one right here. You put it up on a little tripod, kind of like this, you know, some, one of these things and you time-lapse yourself cleaning it over the course of an hour or whatever. And then you, I'll put, I'll do two posts. I'll do, actually, you could do three things with this. It's really easy. So you do a time lapse and you make it into an Instagram reel, which also turns into a TikTok and which turns into YouTube short as well. Three pieces of content going into three different places, all from one time lapse. And the time lapse is cleaning my RV before it goes out for a three week rental. How much money do you think I'll make over the next three weeks? Make a comment in the comments and then it'll get comments and it'll get whatever. And then you do a part two, like a week, uh, three weeks later, where the RV comes back and you go, Hey, part two, here's how much. And then you're cleaning it again. You go, I'm cleaning it up after a three day weekend. I made this much money after this. It cost me this much money to clean it myself with Windex and this and that and blah, 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 blah. My net profit is blah. Want to learn more? Go over to my YouTube channel. I then would create a YouTube channel or a YouTube video sitting in my RV before I clean. And I go, Hey guys, I'm going to clean my, uh, I'm going to clean my RV today. All on my iPhone, by the way. Everything is done on my iPhone primarily. Hey guys, I'm going to clean my iPhone or my RV today. I'm going to tell you what chemicals I use, how long it takes me, things that I really spend my time and energy on, things that bother me about, like the renters when they bring it back, they always miss these things and da 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 da. And then take that time lapse and put that time lapse in the middle of the YouTube video so that the people see you doing the thing. And then at the end, wrap it up and go, all right, guys, it came back. Here's the three week. Here's my rundown on the financials. That's a whole YouTube video that people are going to be like, dude, this is so great. The guy showed me how he cleans, what chemical he uses, how much it costs him. At the end, he broke it down on a whiteboard. Like I have a whiteboard in my garage. So you don't need like some fancy dancy studio. Just put it on a whiteboard and go, all right, guys, this is what I brought in. This is how much my RV payment is, my insurance, my cleaning materials, my this, that, and the other. I netted $842 and blah, 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 blah cents. What would that mean for you guys? And I don't, I don't know if you do you sell a course around it. Yeah, I do. I don't push it very hard at all. It's just kind of there for people who want Well, that's more, where but. you push it is you push it to YouTube, right? Or you push it through YouTube. I don't push mine through YouTube, but you would then push yours through YouTube by saying, I teach a group of people how to do this. If you guys are interested, you know, send me a DM on Instagram or whatever it is, right? And then the other place that I would put the content as well is I would take that same time lapse. I do this all the time. This is why I have this here because a lot I'm on so many podcasts and I'm on so many Zooms with my students that I will time-lapse myself as mobile notaries come into my office. I will sign right here and I'll document me sitting here with a mobile notary and I'll put it on Reels and YouTube and blah, blah, blah. But I also put it on my Instagram stories, which is my favorite place to post. Because Instagram stories is only around for 24 hours. I can screw up and test out the mechanics of Instagram. I can try out music. I can try out little gifts. I can try out all sorts of things 
knowing that in 24 hours it's going away and I don't care. So I just post a lot on my stories. I probably post 15 to 20 things a day on my stories, just documenting my day all the way through my day. And so I would put that time lapse on my stories and say, hey, here's me cleaning my RV. I just made a whole YouTube video about blah, blah, blah. And I would give people the link because stories are the only place you can actually give a link away and they can click on it, go to your YouTube channel. For me, if I could have started over and done social media the right way, I would have started with a YouTube channel and then created other things to push to my YouTube channel. Because YouTube, I have a good size YouTube, 75,000 subscribers, but it makes me just from Google ads, like people running ads on my channel, I make about 12 grand a month from that. And that pays for two of my video editors, like five, two full-time video editors that that money goes to. So now I have the ability to amplify my team but then I have all sorts of other ways I make money. I mean, one of the deals I'll tell you guys about today came from my social media. Like I make millions of dollars from social media, millions of dollars. Now, this is going to be super detailed, but if you're recording this for a YouTube video on your iPhone, do you do it sideways? Yeah, I do it sideways. I do it sideways on my phone, which is challenging because then when you, you're like, we just did this the other day in Texas because my videographer comes with me now. Again, Guys, you create content by yourself on your iPhone for like two, three years. That's how long it takes. It takes a long time. Be patient and do the work. And then you start making money and then you can hire people and do whatever, And which is what I've done. Like I pay for my videographer to fly with me. He's a friend of mine and we hang out. Now I'm not just flying around buying real estate by myself. It's like I, I got a buddy, a companion with me, but we go to the property. And he's like, do you want me to go landscape or vertical? Landscape or vertical, right? Type of thing. And I'm like, I don't know, what are we going to use this content for? Genuinely, I have to stop and think, what am I going to use this content for? And there are times where I'll film something horizontally that I wish I filmed vertically. And it's like, really, is that my biggest problem today is whether I'm going to film it horizontal or vertical, you know? And it works. It always works out. We, it always works out and we get, just get better and better and better and better. And you just improve along the way. In fact, I free this, this, I just got back, fly to Texas. Right, Dallas, rent a car, stay in a hotel that night at one o'clock in the morning because I'm busy, right? And we filmed our TV show on Friday till seven. I get on a flight at nine. I land at one o'clock in the morning in Dallas, get into a hotel, you know, after getting a rental car. So I'm like trudging through the airport and all this stuff. Drive the next morning, three and a half hours to where this apartment building is that I just bought, just for Eric to go, I forgot the batteries. This happens. This happens. This stuff happens. And then the seller is so happy to like, be on camera with me. I'm like, we need two mics. Why didn't you bring two mics, bro? So I'm like recording my audio on my iPhone's voice memos while the seller is on the actual only mic that we have with a battery that's only going to last 30 minutes to like film all the content that we literally spent three days to get out there for. And guess what, guys? It's still going to work out. It's just don't overthink it. Just get it done. And fun. sometimes it's just fun. Like the, the adventure is more important than the actual journey and the destination. And it was just a great adventure to be like, Eric screwed up. That was funny. Ha ha ha. That was great. And we had a good time. Last question about social media. I want to get into some of the really creative strategies that you do. One more question about social media. If you were making a YouTube channel, so I talk about real estate, obviously I have the real estate podcast, mm-hmm. but I also do the RV. Kind of separate, kind of similar. It's kind of a spin on real estate, kind of not. If it was you, would you make a real estate channel and an RV channel or would you do it all on one? Do you separate out the topics or you keep it in one? I'm creating a second channel probably in the next three months. Okay. My second channel is going to be only like financial information about like side hustles and things I'm doing with my son for him to make money and financial planning what's going on in the market, like kind of a general basic topic. I'll never talk about creative finance on there. I would never, like, unless you're so niche, your topic is so niche and you have as much content around it that I do. Like I could literally, no joke, I could post 20 to 30 YouTube videos a week on my channel on creative finance. So for me, like it made sense for me to have a very niched down YouTube channel that I have so much content around this one topic and never really care about it ever getting to like 3 million subscribers because creative finance is never going to get to 3 million subscribers, right? Even though I'm on A&E, like I got a paycheck that has Disney's name on it. Like that's the, it's crazy. Even with that brand that's growing, nobody's coming to learn creative finance from me unless they're kind of already wanting to get into real estate. So for me, you have a unique advantage that I don't have, which is you don't have to have your whole channel around RV rentals. You can have a channel like 
Go look at Spencer Cornelia. He's doing a great job. He's got like half a million subscribers, a recent friend of mine, young kid. And what he does is he talks about all the ways he makes money or what I like about this, ways that he's interested in potentially making money. And he'll interview other people about those topics rather than try and worry about his... Like, bro, you every single one... Of, does your podcast go on YouTube? Yes. Yep. But that, what but I would separate, do is I would keep, but that's going to be separate. So like that's perfect. through, so we have TIP, which I know you're familiar with. TIP has its own yes. YouTube channel. The podcast goes on its own YouTube channel with TIP. So that's like our TIP page, but I'm talking about like me personally, like the Robert Leonard. Yes, bro, you need a hundred percent. You need a personal brand YouTube, 100%. And I would make it so authentic to like what you're doing and what you want to be doing. And then it comes across like Spencer Cornelia. He's like, Hey guys, I just found a guy local in Vegas that buys used cars and flips them. And he makes like $2,000 on every single car. And he was looking for investors. So I'm giving him $10,000 for him to like use my money and we're going to split the profits. And he's just documenting a new thing he's trying out. And he's like, it may fail. It may not fail. And then the next video is about something completely different, but it's still in the realm of making money, right? I think for you, and if you have a lot of content around RV rentals, I would make a very specific channel to that. But if you don't have enough content, right? Maybe you're just kind of starting your... I'm, this is maybe now towards your audience listening. If you don't have a lot of content, you're just starting out and about RV rentals, I would go a little bit more broad and talk about RV rentals 30% of the time, some other things 30% of the time, and then maybe take some Q&A on your, like in your YouTube comments and turn those into 30% of your YouTube videos. And I would kind of make it a little bit more broad because you'll get way more subscribers way faster going broad than you will doing what I did, which took me two years to get to 75,000. I think the RVs would be just like your, your niche because it's going to be super niche and it's never going to get to 3 million subscribers. There's just not that many people that are interested in RV rentals, but I think it could get to 75, hundred K. I think there's that many people, but it's oh, bro, I mean, do you follow keep your daydream on YouTube? No, I don't do it. I don't watch a lot of YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. It's probably the number one thing I consume because I love watching what other people are doing in you know their own branding and marketing. I would go follow Keep Your Daydream. They're an RV family that travel around the country, and they're they don't talk about RV rentals. Okay? Are they on TikTok? I think but, I might have seen them on TikTok. Oh, they're everywhere. They do they do such a great job. They have a massive following of other people who are interested in RVs and RV rentals. And so what's funny about all these people that are like RV families, they already know RVs really well. And they're all like, how do we make money in the RV world? How do we make... I'm looking at their comments all the time. I'm like, why aren't you guys going on like... What is it? It's not RV Trader. What's the websites that people use? RV Trader is where you can buy them. RV Share and Outdoorsy are like the Airbnb version of RVs. I used RV Share for about a year with my... I have an Airstream and we traveled around the country with it for about a year. And then I got so busy with the TV show. We were like, hey, let's... While we're filming the TV show, let's rent it out. And I rented it out for a year and it was really, really good. I was like, wow, this is like making me a thousand dollars net after my payment on the Airstream. This is great. I love... What the freak? This is great. I want to buy 10 of these. Like, And I just got too busy and it wasn't my sole focus, but it's a wonderful business for anybody that's trying to get into it. But for you, like you should go look at what these other people are doing in terms of their content. And you should be making comments on their YouTube videos to drive people over to your YouTube channel all around specifically like, hey guys, I teach people how to make money on RV rentals. Like you guys already understand the RV world and how to buy RVs and you know how to manage them and clean them and stuff like that. You guys should be buying three or four of these bad boys and renting them out. So that's like almost the exact realization I had probably a month or so ago was like, I was almost tailoring the RV content to people that listen to the podcast only and saying like, oh, you should go buy a new RV to do this. But then I realized I think the opportunity is all the people that already own RVs that it just sits in their yard 90% of the time because they want to use it two weekends a year and then they can drive it out the rest of the time. And a lot of people that I race motocross with, everybody has an RV for the most part that goes to like these big national races. Yeah, because they go, go like to. camp out there for like four or five days, right? Exactly. And motocross is a very expensive sport. So a lot of people are trying to find ways to make it cheaper. And I'm like, well, you're not using the RV all the time. Rent it out when you're not using it. And so I think I need to really focus on that. I think there's a big audience there. There's a big audience there. I freaking, I think that you're underselling yourself. I think that you could probably get a YouTube channel around RV rentals, probably to half a million people, no doubt. Yeah, I just need to get it's my a wider stuff audience. together. 
And I already yeah. have, and I already, I have no excuse. Like I know we're talking about iPhones here, but I have a very expensive camera that I use. I don't have it set up right now because I'm traveling tomorrow, but nonetheless, I have a very expensive camera that we use. Like I have really nice equipment all for the podcast. Like I already have it. I just need to use it. Yeah. I mean, here, what, what I would tell people that are listening to this that want to create their own content as they should, if you're not using social media in 2022, 2023, it's irresponsible. Like it's absolutely irresponsible for you as a business owner or just somebody who, if you're trying to get anything in the world, social media can provide all of it. What I would say is there's this thing called gas. Okay. And it's gear acquisition syndrome is what it's called. Gas. I got gas. And what I see is people that want to get into content. They'll go out and buy like all the nicest stuff, but they don't end up using it. And then they think like, oh, well, I just need the next thing, or I need another lens, or I need another this, or I need another that. Literally, my most view, I have everything you can imagine. I'll tell you, I got five Blackmagic 6Ks, which that's probably $40,000 in cameras. I've got a Sony FX6, which is a $9,000 camera by itself. I've got all the best of the best stuff, the best lighting, the best everything. And the number one, tool I use that gets the best views and the most views is my freaking iPhone. Because people can tell it's not overproduced. And they're like, oh, this is great. This is just a dude giving me information like clean cut and dry. We end up using my iPhone way more frequently because people actually watch the content on my iPhone. Anybody out there, like, go get one of these. J-O-B-Y is the brand that I use for these things. I use them when I'm walking around. I use them for time lapses. So really, all you need is your phone and I would say a decent tripod that you enjoy holding. And Amazon typically is the one that sells... Like I have 10 of those. They're around my house. In fact, I use them so much that I got sick of going up and down my stairs in my house and finding where they are. So I just bought 10 of them. And they're like in every location that I film, I've got another one sitting there waiting for me to just pop my phone in it. I really have no excuse. I just need to, need to get on it. Even me, bro. I don't have excuse. I should be doing more content, to be honest. I think everybody should really. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. 
So I want to get into some of the real estate specific stuff. Uh, I want to, you're very well known for a lot of creative finance, but specifically sub two. And to be completely honest, I do not know much about this strategy. I told you before, it's kind of rare that I have a new guest on that talks about something that I haven't really heard of much about in the real estate world. So I really am here learning with the audience uh, about this topic. Give us a full rundown on what it is, how it works, why it's a great strategy, and how you got into it. Let's tie this into RV rentals, okay? Because your, your audience is kind of already like, understands what that is. Let's say I want to go out and I just want to start renting out an RV, right? Well, I'm brand new. I don't have credit. I don't have an RV. I don't have any money, right? Okay, well, that's your excuse. And this happens in real estate all the time. Like, I don't have money. I was the same guy. It's like I was sitting there fixing and flipping for everybody for years before I realized like there's so many different ways to get into this. And so, if I today, if I have no credit, I can't go buy and get a, an RV on credit. I can't go get a loan for one. I have no money. I can't buy one with cash. Well, couldn't I just drive through the streets and find somebody who has their RV parked in their lawn and go knock on the door and go, Hey, I see you have an RV parked in the lawn. Would you mind if I go out and rent this out and I'll split the profits for you? I'll make sure it's insured, it's cleaned, it's taken care of. And yeah, you're going to get some people that say no, but you're going to get a lot of people that go, wait, yeah, I've been wanting to do that. I've thought about it, but like, I don't have the time. Great. And you go around town, let's say you spend a month doing that. Do you think it's reasonable to say that you could probably find five to 10 people in a month of driving around town that would let you rent out their RV? Probably, right? So I'm doing this with trailers with my son. Okay, so I do a trailer rental business. I have like a dump bed trailer that I bought. I paid 12 grand for it because I use it for my own business. But the problem with it is that we rent it out and it makes like three grand a month, which is really great. What we did is I told my son, I go, all right, you're 14 years old. So that's, it's time for you to start manning up a little bit. Let's go and we're going to drive around town and we're going to find people that have trailers in their yard. You've seen them. You drive around your town. You'll, you guys will start noticing this now that you've heard me say this. And there's so many people that have trailers sitting on their side yard that never get used. And what I did is I just started knocking doors with my son and I told the ladies, the first two ladies we got, hey, this is my son. He's 14. Not trying to sell you anything, but we own a trailer rental business. We see you have a trailer right here. We would love to partner with you on renting that trailer out and split the profit with you for the first six months. And they go, wow, really? That's cool. I really like that. And so we ended up the trailers are not there anymore. So I hauled them. The, both ladies said yes. I hauled them to my parking lot, which we have access to at one of my buildings. And now we have five rentals, one of them I own, the other four I don't. So this is called trailer rental arbitrage. Like I'm not the owner of those trailers. I'm just borrowing for them from people and renting them out. So you can do the same thing with RVs, right? Well, I don't like this model necessarily because guess what? I don't own the, the RV. I don't own the trailer. And so what I started doing with my son is I started going, let's go to these people and let's ask them if they'll let us take over their trailer and pay them off monthly, right? So give us a monthly payment. So essentially seller financing their trailer to us. We have one lady that this week we're signing a contract with. She has a trailer. She bought it for 7,000. She was going to go sell it on Craigslist for 3,000. And I told her, well, what if I give you $5,000, but I give it to you with payments? Would you be okay with that? You'll make $2,000 more money. She's like, yeah. How, many, how much money can you pay me per month? I go, 100 bucks. That's not enough. And I go, how about 250 bucks? She goes, okay, I'll do that. We're going to start paying her 250 bucks a month on a trailer that will bring me in $3,000 a month in income. And I am the owner of that trailer and she has become my bank. Does that make sense? So I'm not splitting profits with her anymore. I'm just making payments to her. And so she becomes the bank. We create what is called a promissory note, or I promise to pay you. Therefore, I'm writing it on a note that we both have a copy of. It's called a promissory note. Here's our agreement. If I fail to pay you, you take the trailer back and you keep all the money I gave you along the way. And so that is buying a trailer on creative finance. I could do the same thing with an RV. I could go to somebody and go, hey, now this is what, here's the difference between seller finance and subject to. Seller finance means that the lady has the trailer paid off free and clear. She has no debt on it. And she's the sole owner with no debt. So she can create whatever number she wants to sell it to me for and say, yeah, I'll sell it to you for five grand because on Craigslist, I'll get three. 
that means I get benefited by selling it to you for a higher dollar amount. And I get to see you guys win as well. This is a win-win. I get more money. You get more money. This is amazing. That's seller financing, right? The seller is financing me. They're giving me a loan essentially as the bank. The seller acts as if they are the bank. Now with subject two, typically you're not going to find too many people have trailers that have loans on them, but you're going to run into a lot of RV owners that have big loans on these RVs. Okay. We've done this before too. When I first bought my Airstream, the first trailer I ever bought, the first RV that I ever bought, I just went on Craigslist and I found people that had Airstreams and I would call them and I go, can I buy this on terms? And they go, I don't even know what the hell terms are. What are you, what are you talking about? Terms. But the price is on the Craigslist ad. And I go, no, no, no. Do you owe a debt on this? Do you have a loan on this? And they go, yeah, I owe 37500 I'm looking for fifty. I go, great. If I give you a small down payment, maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars, will you let me take over your loan of the thirty-seven thousand five hundred and just make the payments to your bank for you? And then I'll make another payment to you for the equity, right? They had like fifteen thousand dollars in equity. So the first airstream I ever bought was bought on subject two. Subject two means somebody has a debt with a bank that they owe the bank $37,500. And I just start making the payment on the debt. I don't have to qualify for it. I don't have to show credit. I don't have to go to my job history, my W-2. I don't have to show my bank records, tax returns, nothing. I can just literally take over that Airstream, an agreement between the seller and myself and says, I'm the new owner and I just make a payment to the debt. So that's the difference between subject to and seller finance. Seller finance means the thing is paid off free and clear. Subject to means they owe a debt on it that I'm just going to take over. I own it. My personal house was bought subject to. My last personal house was bought subject to. The last 700 rentals I have in my portfolio are bought subject to or seller finance. And I even have a Kia. One of my cars in my garage was bought subject to. I had a guy um, who was on Craigslist, my videographer named Eric. He says, Pace, I know you talk a lot about subject to, but could you subject to a car? I go, yeah, let's do it today. And so I go on Craigslist and I start hammering through. It took me about 40 phone calls. Okay. So I started hammering through the the Craigslist ads and um, I get to a Kia and it's like, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, interesting. But, you know, I've already got 15 people coming to look at the car today. So probably not. I get all the way down to this guy who has had a Kia on Craigslist for like 60 days and he hasn't sold it, which in this market, you haven't sold a car. What is going on? Like cars are hard to come by right now. There's a car shortage, you know, like cars are going for over what they should be going for. So I call him up and I go, Hey, I'm looking for, uh, to take over payments on somebody's car. I saw your key has been in here for 60 days. He goes, You would take over my payments? I go, Yeah. He goes, Oh my gosh, that'd be great. I go, uh, Do you need any money for it? And he goes, No. I bought this thing on a dealership. I basically owe 26 grand on it. It's worth 26 grand. So I put it on Craigslist for 30. Nobody wants to pay 30. They want to pay 24 or 22. And if they pay me 24 or 22, I can't pay off my loan. That is worth 26. I go, well, what's going on? He goes, I'm sick. I'm taking a year off of work, like a hiatus. I can't drive right now. And it's a $600 monthly payment. Sorry, $500 monthly payment. Insurance is a hundred bucks. So it's $600. And I go, I'll take that over. He goes, you would take this? I go, yep. So we write an agreement. I make the payment to his ally bank for $500 and I have my own insurance on it now. What am I doing with that Kia? I gave it to my son. He has it on Turo. It brings in $1,500 a month. So I took over a Kia subject to the underlying debt. So there's a debt, $26,000. I just pay, make that payment and I go turn that into a $1,500 a month rental. So I can do that on anything. RVs, I can do it on trailers, I can do it on cars, and I'm well known for doing it on houses and mobile home parks and multifamily apartment complexes and all that kind of stuff. It can be done with anything. Anything, anything, anything can be bought subject to. I have so many questions, but the first thing is when it comes to real estate, the first thing that popped in my mind was what about the do on sale clause? And I know you have a YouTube video, I know you've covered this, but explain it for my audience. What happens to the do on sale clause when you do a subject to with a real estate deal? Let's talk about the do on sale clause. The do on sale clause is you become the owner. Okay. So this is like yesterday I was in, I was speaking on stage and somebody goes, I don't understand this. How can you become the owner of something if the original owner still owes a debt to the bank? Doesn't the bank own that thing? I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this. Robert, have you ever used a credit card to buy groceries before? This morning. Okay. So you bought groceries this morning with a credit card. 
Who owns those groceries, you or the credit card company? Me. Right. Everybody pay attention to this. You have a debt to your credit card company that you owe them money now, right? You'll pay them at the end of the month or whatever. You have a debt okay, on your credit card statement. Just like people have a debt on their house, a debt on their RV, a debt on whatever, just because there's a debt owed on the property doesn't mean you're not the owner. It just means you're not the owner free and clear. You own it on public record. It shows you're the owner. You can refinance it. You can sell it. You can paint it pink. You can do whatever you want with that thing because you are the owner of that thing. Now, how do I verify that I'm the owner of those groceries? Well, physically, I have them in my hand. So that's like I own them. But also, there's something called the receipt. Okay. The receipt verifies ownership. And in real estate or RVs or cars or whatever, that's the title. Okay. Whoever has the title, right? Or the right to the title, that's the owner. They're holding the title. In a vehicle, an RV, a trailer, the bank will hold the title, even though the title is in, it has your name. The title has your name from day one, but the bank is physically holding it until you pay it off or you sell, sell it or whatever, and they sell, send it to you. Okay. In housing, it's not like that. Housing, I get the deed is what we call it. We don't call it a title. We call it a deed in, in housing. That's the receipt of ownership. I can trade my deed. I physically hold my... In fact, I've got one of them like sitting right here, sitting next to me. It's a one-page document that says, I own this property. And in real estate, you don't wait to receive the title until the house is paid off. You have it on day one. In vehicles, it's called... I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but it's called an agreement for sale. It is subject to in seller finance, but the bank holds the title that has your name on it. A lot of people don't know this. The bank is holding the title that has your name on it. You are the owner until you pay it off. And then they mail it to you once it's paid off. Okay. But in housing, it's not like that. So you can have a debt with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, Wells, whoever, and you can still be the owner. And people have to understand that. Okay. For example, this house. Okay. I bought this house for $3 million and there's a loan on this house with Zion's Bank. Okay. It's a, it's a bank prevalent in like Idaho, Utah, whatever. Zion's Bank gave the previous owner, not me, gave the previous owner a loan for this $3 million. Okay. I came to the owner and I go, let me take over your payments. And the owner goes, you can do that. I go, yeah, you can do that. So I took over the payments on a $3 million house, moved my family in, and the deed was transferred into my name. What happens is if Zion's Bank finds out that I transferred that deed into my name, there's something called the due on sale clause. And due on sale means literally what it says. The debt, the $3 million is due upon the sale of the property. And guess what? Just because the debt hasn't been paid off doesn't mean I haven't sold the property. Jerry, the former owner, transfers the deed to my name and that is a verified sale. The difference is we just never paid off the $3 million in doing it. So the bank doesn't have an obligation to do this, but they have a right. And the, the right that they have is they have the right to say, hey, Pace, we see you're the new owner of this property, but our $3 million never got paid off. We would like to have that money paid off. You have six months or else we're going to foreclose on you. So that's the due on sale clauses. The due on sale clause gives the bank the right to call the debt due when the property is sold. So they call it due on sale clause. Okay. For anybody who didn't, didn't know what that meant. So there's multiple ways to avoid this. There is due on sale clause insurance that's available for people. If you want to go out and get insurance, I don't buy that insurance. Two, understanding that only this is going to happen once out of maybe a thousand subject twos that you'll ever do. It's happened to me five times. And the third thing is when it does happen to you, which it has happened to me five times, there are ways to mitigate and get rid of it. And we could go into that. It's like, like an hour long conversation, but it is nothing to worry about. We've never, I've never, in all my years of d- doing this, I've never seen somebody lose a house or anything to do on sale. There's very easy things you can do. This is going to be tough for people that don't understand real estate. Usually the do on sale clause comes up when people actually understand what the do on sale clause. If I have to explain what the do on sale clause, it means you shouldn't even worry about it. But people that are in real estate, they typically know what do on sale clause means. I'm going to go through this and it's going to mind boggle a bunch of people and you're not going to understand half of what I'm saying. So forgive me for what I'm saying. Okay. So I've had the do on sale clause called on me. We had a house, uh, it was on Lost Dutchman Way, which is the name of the street that the house was on. 
the seller was in foreclosure. Okay, this happens all the time in subject two, where I find a lot of these subject two deals are sellers who are in foreclosure. They lost their job. They lost their second income. Maybe it's somebody in their household passed away. Maybe they got sick, whatever. Literally thousands of different stories of why sellers do this is because in subject two, it's all about pain. And in seller finance, it's all about gain. Okay, remember that because people will always ask, why would a seller do this? Well, subject to it's typically pain. And like if I tied it into RV rentals, it would be the pain of watching my RV sitting out there in the side yard with a thousand dollar payment and I haven't done anything with it. I have pain. I, I just want to get rid of that thing. Okay, there's pain there. So I, I go knock on that door and I go, can I take over your payment on your RV and I'll give you like maybe a hundred dollars a month until I pay the thing off or whatever? There's a high likelihood that that person, the longer that RV has been sitting in their side yard, is going to say yes to you because there's more pain. The more pain, the higher likelihood you're going to get this. So the seller on Lost Dutchman Way, he's in foreclosure. He owes $20,000 in late payments. He's behind. He's going to lose his house to the bank. Okay. So we get a hold of him through cold calling. We, there's a list of foreclosures. Guys, people that are like, how do I get into real estate? Guys, pull a foreclosure list. There's literally thousands of people that are in foreclosure right now in your town that need you to call them and say, how can I help you out? Can I take over your payments? Can I catch you up? Can I help you find another house to live in? That's all we do is just help people with their bad situations. It's all we do in real estate. We call this guy and we go, hey, we notice you're behind on your payments. What's your plan with the house? Anything we can do to help you? Seller says, I just need to get out of this town. This town is so toxic for me. I just need to go back to Colorado. We go, okay, well, can we take over your payments? And he goes, yeah, take over my payments, but I'm 20 grand behind. We go, okay, great. Well, we'll catch up the 20 grand. You know, we bring in a private money lender or we, whatever. We catch up his 20 grand. We give him $1,500 and we take over the house. We paint the house. We turn it into a rental and that thing's been renting for us for like five years. It's been great made hundreds of thousands of dollars of the growth of that property. That property has killed it. And so here's what happens. When we catch up the payments, okay, this is where due on sale clause typically gets called. Somebody's in foreclosure, which means now the bank has got them in a very specific like crimson red, oh my gosh, these sellers are the bad actors type of category and pile in their computer system. When you reinstate their loan, they have to transfer that file from foreclosure to reinstated and in good standing. Okay. So we buy this house, we close escrow one day after we reinstate the loan. We catch the $20,000 up, we reinstate the loan. The very next day after we close on it, which means the deed, remember the receipt transfers into my name, the owner of the bank, it's a very small bank, Johnson Bank. The owner of the bank has a physical stack of manila folders on his desk. And he says, all right, well, let's go through the folders and see who's reinstated and who hasn't reinstated. And he sees our file on Lost Dutchman Way. And he goes, okay, well, looks like they've caught up their payments. So he takes it, opens up the manila folder, goes to the computer and is physically typing things in, goes to transfer from getting foreclosed on to reinstated and in good standing. And in that process, guess what he notices? He notices that I'm the new owner. That's where the due on sale clause comes from, right? What does he do? He goes, oh, looks like somebody just bought this subject too. So he types up a letter, sends it out to us. We receive the letter a week later and the letter says, you have six months to pay off this debt or else we're going to foreclose on you and take the house back. I call the bank, like personally myself, which is pretty unlikely. It's just Johnson Bank is so small that the actual owner of the bank was the one physically doing the work. Like, How unlikely is that? Jamie Dimon at Chase Bank is not looking at their files, right? So I get on, get on the phone with him. His name is Brian. I get on the phone with Brian. I go, hey, Brian, I caught up the $20,000 late payments. He goes, no, 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 I saw that. Like I saw that. I appreciate that. I see that you bought the house subject to. The, everybody knows that subject to is in real estate, especially in the banks. And he goes, I know you bought a subject to, but our bank policy is to always call the due on sale clause. And I'm like, Brian, like, dude, I caught up $20,000 of payments and you guys didn't have to foreclose on this house. He's like, no, we, I appreciate that. That's great. And I go, I want to keep the house. I don't want to go sell it or refinance you out or anything like that. I just want to keep it. And he goes, okay, I have a suggestion for you. What I would do is just give the deed. This is where it gets hairy. This is where people are going to have a hard time understanding this. Transfer the deed back to the owner. This costs $17 at the county records recorder's office. Transfer the deed back to the previous owner and then repurchase the house on a lease option where your option to buy it is the outstanding mortgage balance. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so genius. Because think about this. 
in a lease option, there's two documents. Okay. There's a lease, which means I'm renting the property from the owner. There's a lease. And then there's an option document. This is why we call it a lease option. So if anybody's ever listened to a lease option, there's two documents, lease and an option. The option contract states that I have the option to buy this at a determined price at a determined point in the future. What we do is the determined price is whatever the mortgage balance is on the day that I decide to sell it or buy it myself. Does that make sense? So as I make payments on the lease, the mortgage payment, the mortgage balance goes down and down and down and down. So essentially, I've still bought that property subject to, it's just that the deed is not in my name, which then gets rid of the due on sale clause. On that property, we have a lease option. It's an automatic renewal for the next 27 years, because that's how many years are still on the mortgage. And whenever I decide to sell it, whenever I decide to refinance it, whenever I decide to do anything with that property, all I have to do is execute my option at whatever that day's mortgage balance is. In 10 years, it's going to be 100 grand less. In 15 years, it's going to be 150 grand less. Essentially, my strike price or my option price goes down and down and down the more lease payments I made. So I still bought that creatively. I just avoided the due on sale clause by doing it that way. Now, most people will ask, well, why don't you just buy every property on a lease option with that same... Why wouldn't you just do every house that way? All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode and part one of this two-part series with Pace Morby. Be sure to tune in next week for part two and the continuation of this episode. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.